The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson. This week on the podcast, we talk to television and travel legend Joseph Rosendo about his TV show Travel Scope, sharing food with monks, the floating markets of Bangkok, and the worst traffic jam ever. I was in a traffic jam with a, in a cab. We sat there and sat there and sat there waiting. Finally, the traffic started to move, and our driver jumped out, ran ahead of us, and, and knocked on the window of the cab in front of us because the cab driver had fallen asleep. That's how long we had been sitting there. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. But hey, everybody, I'm John Myers. Welcome to The Winemakers. And how nice is it to say that? Wait, who, they, who is that? Who's that on our show? Mark Hansen, right now? Sam Paturi, <laughs> and Todd Cavallo. Welcome, man. Everybody. Cheers. Thank Todd. you for having me. Cheers. Todd, what a nice place you live in, upstate New York, and you're growing wine there and had a baby all in four years. Hey, tell us about where exactly you live now. Uh, so we are in Pine Bush, New York, in the mid-Hudson Valley, uh, about an hour and a half north of the city on the west side of the river. Nice. Um, yeah, on, you know, it's a small nine and a half acre farm, kind of in the middle of uh, what used to be mostly farmland, but there's some more uh, development going on in the towns here these days. So, you know, we can drive two minutes to a hardware store or a grocery store. So I'm not like way, way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it's, it's a nice place up there. Really is beautiful country. So how many of your nine and a half acres are dedicated to your wine crop now? Uh, we only planted one acre so far. Um, and then a friend of ours, five minutes up the road, we planted an acre on his property, uh, three years ago. And then we are kind of co-managing three acres, uh, a little further North in the capital region. And then we have another friend with three acres about 15 minutes up the road. And uh, we've been buying all of his crop, but he's starting to make some wine this year. So we're, uh, we're going to have to source some new stuff. We also work with some growers in the Finger Lakes and Long Island. Um, and yeah, I mean, just to get into it right away, part of our philosophy has shifted from like, I want to plant our whole property to vines and, you know, tear up everything that's here and move towards, I, I want to work with other growers in New York who've been growing for a while who may not have been growing in the way that we believe in, or we like to think we should be growing and kind of move them in that direction. So, you know, rather than replacing native uh, grasslands with a new monoculture monocrop, we're taking stuff that's already planted and moving it towards organic production. Yeah. yeah don't take out your pool. <laughs> we don't have one yet, but I'm t um, we talk about it every day. Yeah. <laughs> So what was the condition of the growers and, and what they were doing that you weren't impressed with and you want to change? Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I, I'm not impressed. People have been growing some really good um, wine in New York for a while now. And, you know, it's been changing a lot over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, I think primarily because the, uh, the market has changed and it's kind of allowed for a buyer or a consumer who likes, you know, high acid, low alcohol wines 
So rather than trying to fit into the mold of what was cool 20 years ago, where people are trying to make, you know, 15% wines in New York state, which are never going to taste good. People are able to make 11, 11 and a half, 12% wines that are a little, you know, higher acid food friendly and the market is there for them. Um, so yeah, they, they've been growing grapes for a while, but we had a lot of disease pressure here. Um, and also there's just a lot of very, you know, Cornell is, is right up in the Finger Lakes and they kind of drive the conversation as far as farming goes. And uh, they, you know, there hasn't been a lot of success with organic grape farming in New York state yet. Um, so really it's just like, you know, I, I meet with a grower. I'm like, hey, listen, I want to buy some of your fruit. Will you stop spraying herbicide this year? And that's step one for us. Um, yeah. And that's been actually- Good step one, seriously. Yeah, yeah, that's been pretty, uh, pretty, easy um, now that we've been established for a little while and you know people see that we're actually out there selling our wine and then step two is you know let's talk about some of the fungicides that are getting sprayed you know systemically on a schedule and let's see if we can rotate those out for some of the bio-intensive uh, practices that we're experimenting with on our farm here um, meanwhile I totally understand that like we have no fruit yet so I don't have to worry about like losing my crop <laughs> and so I'm able to experiment with that stuff here without uh, big fear. Whereas someone with 20 acres, I'm going to be like, Hey, spray this, not that. Trust me. It's going to work. It's a hard sell. Hey, Trust hey, me. Todd, can, can, can you kind of go back to the beginning of, you know, what you did before you started wild arc and, um, what was your path to, to doing this? Uh, I mean, kind of, you know, circuitous. I, um, I lived in the city for 18 years. I went to school there and then like never left. And then I worked in technology, um, but not in the kind of technology where you make a lot of money. Um, I just had some partners and we had a small like uh, tech consulting firm just in the city. And then I did software development within that, um, but small potato stuff, no like major startups. Um, and while doing that, you know, I learned to enjoy good food and I have two younger brothers who worked in restaurants and wine in the city for a dozen years. And so, you know, through them, I met other people in the wine world, learned more about wine, what was going on in New York state. Um, and I had always like done home brewing and made kombucha and cider and stuff in my Brooklyn apartment, but I'd never tried winemaking because I didn't want to buy a juice kit and do that. And so when right. the time came that we thought of getting some land, we had like this broader goal of doing market vegetable farming, planting some trees and some vines and growing some cider and wine. Um, and then growing a whole bunch of herbs and doing teas and tinctures and all sorts of other hippie stuff. And uh, the wine thing kind of took off like a shot the first year. And so we've been basically doubling our production every year for the first four years. Um, and for me, that was the ultimate goal. I, I knew I wanted to make wine and it was just, you know, we hedged a little bit and the fact that it worked out kind of was a lucky break for us. So now I'm a winemaker. Actually, I had a five year plan to keep my day job and then my business partners kind of gave me the boot two years in. So they pushed me off that cliff a little early. <laughs> what was the first wine that you made? So we bought a little bit of Cab Franc from the Finger Lakes the first year. Um, it was hard to find fruit that year. It was kind of a lower cropping year for New York state. And I was just, there's a, a, a marketplace message board that Cornell runs and I was just on there every day and I set up alerts to hit my phone anytime something got posted. And somebody posted a few tons and I, I reached out and they said, oh, we sold it all. 
And then my friend who makes wine right up in the Catskills here from Finger Lakes Fruit is like, oh yeah, I got all two tons. I'll give you a half a ton if you come help me process it. So <laughs> right uh, that's An Andrew at Eminence Road. He's, he's kind of one of the OGs of New York uh, low intervention wine. Um, so yeah, we made, uh, you know, we split it up and did a little rosé as an experiment and a little red Cab Franc. And that was our first, you know, 25 cases. And what was the plan for making it? Was it using a, your friend's facility or a crush pad facility or buying your own equipment? Yeah, we did it uh, at his facility the first year. And I just bought a couple of half barrels um, to, to age it in. And then that year, we also did a bunch of cider here. So I bought like a small wooden basket press. And then year two, we ended up um, getting a slightly larger uh, wooden basket press, but it's a bladder press. Um, I can I can get about... Uh, you know, it takes me three loads to do a ton of fruit in there usually. I mean, depending on if it's uh, direct press or if it's been fermenting for a while. Um, and then slowly we've just been amassing, you know, tanks and barrels and punchins. And we do mostly old wood, so it's pretty cheap for us to get stuff from the brokers either over on the West Coast or up in the Finger Lakes. Um, yeah, and we just, you know, we keep setting up new agreements with people to buy fruit and helping them move in that direction that we like for the farming. And um we started distributing. Um, we were self-distributed and we had, you know, we were doing wholesale and retail. But uh, two and a half years in, we got distribution through Jenny and Francois um, and they do national. So we do the Northeast with them. And then we have a couple other distributors for the West Coast. And, you know, basically they'll take as much as we can give them. Um, our thing now is just like trying to up our DTC sales because obviously get a bigger chunk of change from the direct sales than uh, when you send stuff to wholesale. Well, can people come visit you right there on the farm and, and try stuff? Yeah, we do tastings by appointment right now. We don't have a tasting room because the room in the barn that was supposed to be is now full of barrels. Um, so we just kind of do <laughs> walk around tours and tastings and bottle sales by appointment. And we just uh, got a local builder to build us some picnic table bases that we're going to put the tops on ourselves and we're going to do like two hour block on site um, wine and, and food, um, but we can't do full food yet. So it'll be like charcuterie and cheese plates. But yeah, that's the, that was the goal this year. And then everything got kind of thrown into the uh, blender. And now everyone else around here is basically doing the same thing. You know, a bunch of picnic tables under tents outside. So we figured why not join in and, and see if we can get some more direct sales that way too. How has the uh, supply of fruit out there last year and this year? Because here in California, we've got an extreme oversupply, right, Sam? There's a lot of grapes. There's a lot of grapes and uh, things, you know. I mean, nothing makes sense anymore this year, but uh, 2018, 2019 were both pretty much record crops. 2018 was yeah. the, most, the most grapes we've ever picked in the state of California. Uh, so yeah. there's a lot of juice. Yeah. Is it the same uh, way upstate New York, Todd? It, it's not. So our, I mean, I like to say our uh, vintage is, is 12 months instead of just basically what happens from bud break to harvest. So both the winters of 2018 and 2019 had some serious cold spells. 2018 was just basically a polar vortex, um, but there was a lot Ooh. of uh, damage yeah. to the vinifera vines that are planted in the Hudson Valley. And so our main grower here, got no fruit that year. Um, they had to retrain canes up from the ground. And 2019 was basically the worst year in a hundred years for growing in the Hudson Valley. And that happens wow. to be 
when we planted our uh, the majority of our vineyards. So we actually lost about 60% of our baby vines to winter kill that year. So we're wow. still replanting slowly. Um, but that's all to say, yeah, the crops in 18 and 19 were very, very low for the Hudson Valley. Finger Lakes fared a lot better. So we ended up uh, supplementing some fruit from the Finger Lakes that we normally would have gotten from our local growers. So the vinifera stuff like Chardonnay, Cab Franc, um, and Riesling, we got a little bit more from the Finger Lakes that year. Um, but yeah, it hasn't. we haven't had a, a real glut of fruit here at all in the last you know five or so years that i've been in the business and i think i don't know there's a lot of planting happening now so there's a lot of stuff coming online in the next three or four years but there's also a lot of new wineries popping up and a lot of people you know small producers trying to do what we're doing so we'll see we'll we'll see what happens with the supply and demand Win winter kill is kind of a given though right i mean a, a small percentage Every yeah, year? Yeah, every year. And we, um, we hill up here. So uh, we're putting, you know, four to five inches of soil on our graft unions on the vinifera. And we have some hybrids planted here too. And those don't have grafts. Those are own rooted. So they can kind of be left alone. And they're a lot more cold hardy anyway. Um, okay, yeah. hang on, hang on. There's a couple terms uh, that, I've, that, I've, that are new to me. So one of them is uh, polar, vor polar vortex. Which okay. I'd never heard. Great name for a band, by the way. Oh, no, you haven't lived in Chicago or upstate New York, man. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. And, yeah. And then the other one is... the weather report. <laughs> obviously not. And then the other thing you said is, and I'm just, I can kind of picture what you're talking about, but when you say we're, we hill it up, you mean you're, you're getting dirt and sort of putting it around the vines to keep them warm or something, right? Right, exactly. So yeah, so polar vortex actually just kind of came into vogue in the last three or four years. I don't know if I'd heard it before that, um, but it's been happening more and more. And it's essentially when, you know, the, the way that the um, Coriolis effect swirls the air on the earth and you've got this like cold pocket of air that kind of swirls down from the North Pole and you basically just get an extended period of super low temps. Um, and when you start to get below, you know, 15 Fahrenheit for an extended period, that's when you worry about um, freezing the vines all the way to the core when they won't then um, grow again wow. the next year. And uh, yeah, then hilling up is, yeah, it's, I forget that you don't have to think about that stuff on the other side of the country in the uh, more uh, useful growing regions. So anyway, we, we actually have a little thing called the grape hoe um, that goes on the side of our tractor and it's got an articulating arm so it goes up and down, in and out. And you basically, I use it throughout the season for weed control with a little fork on it. I was just out there this morning, basically running the fork through the vines to keep everything under control. And then there's a, a, a hoe that goes either direction, one for hilling up and one for dehilling. And so basically in the fall, you make a couple passes with the hilling up and you're just dumping soil um, onto the vines from both sides. And you want to get about four to five inches and you get about 10 to 15 degrees of insulation that way. Um, and that you're protecting just specifically wow. that graft union because it's a lot more uh, susceptible to cold damage than the, the trunks are themselves. And so Sam, that means so we have to plant all our vines specifically so that the graft is two to three inches above the right. soil. So when we're planting, we've got to measure it a fist down. Nothing like that in California, huh, Sam? I mean, no, we don't, you know, we don't um, have nearly the cold weather. Uh, interestingly, we we the effect we feel from polar vortexes is drought. Um, when that when that weather pattern shifts the cold air into the middle of the country in the northeast, 
that creates this ridge of high pressure over the West Coast that pushes. So what's happening is basically the jet stream moves from go, you know, bringing us tropical moisture to going up north, like north of Washington, and then comes down on the other side of the Rockies and brings all this cold, you know, Canadian and Arctic air into the rest of the country. But that means we get, you know, that's when we have, you know, like this winter, uh, you know, we had that month of, you know, unseasonably warm, no fog, no clouds, you know, from the end of March or the end of uh, January through, through February when it was like sunny and beautiful every day. Um, that's what we get from the polar vortex. So there's definitely, you know, effects on our, on, you know, that same climate pattern affects our farming, but in, in very different ways. We, get, we deal with early bud break. We deal with, um, you know, vines that don't go dormant enough. Um, so it definitely, we, we feel it too, just in a different way. Yeah. I'd take some of that dry weather any day. Yeah, we'll take your, we'll take some of your rain. We could just yeah, yeah. give us a pipeline for some of that water. And we could, we wouldn't have as much mildew. It would be great. Sam, have you ever shipped fruit that far? Um, we we do sell grapes to a. Um, I think he mostly does for like home winemaking. We do sell grapes to a guy who processes fruit to to ship it all over the country. Um, yeah, there's a guy up in New Paltz uh, uh, called Pantanos who brings in California fruit for all the home winemakers every season. And yeah. then there's some places in Jersey that do basically you, you come in and you, you make wine there with California fruit in their facility as a custom crush. Um, we're, we're a farm winery, so we have to use 100% New York fruit. Actually, it might, it might be like 90%. I forget. They give us some leeway. But essentially, all of our stuff has to be from New York State. Um, it's part of the, the license that lets us be a little more free with our tasting room and what we can sell and sell for on and off premise too. And so what, how'd you get the name wild arc? Uh, it's actually the first name that crystal or my wife and partner came up with when we were just kind of brainstorming because uh, the property was a perennial nursery for 20 years. And so when we took it over, there was uh, 20 or so hoop houses that had just started to be overgrown with uh, wild raspberries and a whole bunch of other native plants. So they were just, wild and then the arcs if you look down them look like okay. a wild arc and then we kind of retconned it to mean the wild arc that our lives took from you know the city to the country great great reason and what and, and I, I don't know if i missed it or not what grapes are, are you currently growing on property uh so we've got a little uh, pinot noir and cab franc that survived uh the, the winter kill and then we've got some uh, hybrids uh, up front, some La Crescent, which is a white hybrid from the University of Minnesota. And then we just replanted about 500 vines uh, on the west side of the block that uh, we lost all the stuff in with Itasca, which is another new University of Minnesota cold hardy white hybrid. Uh, just got released in like 2016, actually. So there, there haven't been any commercial wines made with it, but the, um, the test wines that people have been making have been really good. And people are kind of staking the hybrid uh, New York you, and other cool Will you talk just it. a little bit more about the hybrid varieties and, and kind of, you know, what they're, what they're doing, what they mean. Um, and, and then obviously, you know, we've talked about a little bit, but a little bit more about why they work in um, more difficult growing regions like, like where you are. Sure. Yeah. So there's, um, there's two uh, main progenitors of these hybrids the, the uh, there's Cornell here in New York state, who's been doing it forever. And then the university of Minnesota. 
Um, and Cornell basically, ha they've been, you know, the grape industry in New York State was huge. Um, we were, you know, the first commercial wineries in the country were in New York. And then um, basically until the railroad allowed, uh, you know, commercial shipping of fruit from California to, to the East Coast, New York was producing most of the wine grapes and all of the table grapes for the East Coast. And so there's still this huge industry um, kind of remnant from that. Like if you go to any of the wineries up in the Finger Lakes, they're all using these like 40 year old Welch's bins that the Welch's company <laughs> used to ship the grapes around um, New York when they were processing them. And uh, so essentially um, what was happening was when the wine industry started to kick back up, um, mostly in the 60s here in New York, they were trying to figure out how to grow grapes that would survive here. And you hear the stories all the time of like Constantine Franck who came over here and said, no, we got to be growing vinifera. We can do it. I, I swear it's the way. And, you know, he's definitely paved the way for us to be growing great Riesling in New York state. Um, but meanwhile, all these people are like, okay, well, it's still pretty hard to do. What can we do with these native grapes or these French American hybrids to cross them further to be cold hardier and also to be less susceptible to disease? Uh, Downy mildew and black rot are the biggest ones for us here in New York. Um, so the yeah the, the the grape breeding experiments have kind of been twofold: making colder, hardy uh, varieties, and then making things that are less susceptible to disease. And that second part has become more and more prevalent as people are looking for ways to grow more sustainably here on the East Coast. Um, so things like Itasca and like Marquette, the, the one I sent you guys, um, are much more recent developments and they've been developed with an eye towards uh, being more resistant to the, to the uh, mildew and mold that are causing trouble here. Well, have you and guys opened up that Marquette? Are you guys drinking that right well, now? Well, I, I, I was gonna ask Todd, yeah, what should we open up first? And um, and if that doesn't matter, can we get right into the skin contact paquette? Yeah, yeah, um, sure. That's I got that one going here now. I, I mean, I, I, I kind of forgot to spit this out because um, <laughs> you don't really have to. It's like yeah, six. You don't really have to, right? I mean, yeah. you know, if I drink well, a sixteen percent Zinfandel and I'm spit tasting and I'm spitting it, I'm probably absorbing the same amount of alcohol as I am. For, you know, drinking this, right? <laughs> drinking the whole can. Exactly. <laughs> Six and a half percent. I mean, Paquette, for, for me, Paquette's brand new. The first I really, I mean, I guess I, I saw things on Instagram, probably your own post, Todd, and, and, and kind of looked into it a little bit. And then a friend of ours, um, uh, Casey Graybill, talked about recently on an episode that he was going to get into it, maybe make a little bit. But I haven't tasted one until now. And I'm digging this. I, I, I'm thinking... This could be a thing. Yeah, it's uh, fun. I mean, and it's like, you know, it just so happens that we released our first one, like, r right when White Claw was getting popular. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, I think I'd much rather White put Claw. this in my body than White Claw. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's we did it kind of on a whim. Um, we had our first vintage. We had done a second wash of all our pomace uh, and distilled it just to make a little grappa for our friends and family um, for fun. And then the, right before the second vintage, uh, our friend uh, Tristan, he works at Kingston Wine Co. up here in the Hudson Valley, showed me this book called uh, The Red and the White, The History of uh, Wine in 18th Century Europe. There's a paragraph on Piquet. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I've heard about that before. And we already basically did the process last season. So what we did in 17 is rather than distill it off, we did a second wash, press it into a tank and just let it sit over the winter. Like, we'll see what happens. If it's, you know, drinkable, great. If not, we'll distill it again anyway. 
and uh, everything turned out pretty interesting in the spring. And then we just did a whole bunch of experiments with how we were going to bottle it. Um, added, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20% of the wine back to it to give it a little bit of a um, boost and some more body. Bottled it with 5, 10, 15 grams of um, sugar to give it bubbles. So all of our piquette are actually um, done like, you know, I guess Cole Fondo style where we do a little tirage uh, for canning or bottling, but we use wildflower honey instead of sugar. And so we settled on, you know, we had about 15% of the wine back. We had about 12 grams per liter of wildflower honey, get it up to close to three atmospheres of pressure. Um, and that's how we decided it tasted best. And so we did them all that way. The first time we put it out on the market to see if anyone would like it. And they did, they bought it up. I mean, there wasn't much of it that time around, but now we make every wine we make, we make piquette from it. And then we decide what to, nice. in, what to re release varietally separately in the spring. When how much do you guys sell it for? What's it sell for, for a six pack or a can? Or I don't know. How uh, so it. we like, we sell the 750 bottles for 15 bucks and oh. then the, the four packs of cans, which are essentially two bottles for 30 bucks, the same, the same price. So it's more expensive than a beer. Although I guess people are paying 30 or 40 bucks for fancy beers right now. We live um, in the land of Pliny out here. Don't forget. Where well, beers. and that's right. We got a winemaker over in Napa that, that does some beers that, pretty much run you 30 bucks a bottle. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, for us, the whole idea was like, we we wanted to keep our prices uh, reasonable to keep our wines accessible in general across the board. And so getting, you know, an extra, we get about 50% of the yield of uh, Piquette that we get from the wine. So if we get, you know, two barrels of wine from a ton of fruit, we'll get a barrel of Piquette. And so getting 15 bucks for a bottle of Piquette lets us keep our wine prices at 20 to 25 instead of having to get 30 bucks for them. Um, and yeah, now, now it's kind of baked into our, our model. We can't really go, go without unless we want to start raising our prices. <laughs> what section does that go in? If that, so if that becomes like a, a popular thing, does that sit next to hard ciders or does that sit in the canned wine or does it sit in the, where does that go? I mean, New York state is weird in general because, um, wine and spirits are sold in different stores than uh, beer and cider can kind of split the difference. And so essentially we're thinking that Piquette will split the difference because this one we did at 6%, which let us put it in a 12 ounce can. Um, but when we do it at 7% or higher, which we have done in the past, we had to use those 375 cans, although they're talking about removing those standards of fill at the TTB level. So that might change. Um, but essentially we, we find for the most part, our stuff is going to, wine shops and kind of being put with a canned wine. Um, I can't control how other people are marketing our stuff, but essentially it's, it's with the canned wine, you know, with a caveat from us that, Hey, it's only 6%. So don't and then does it, it totally. I, I was at the tasting house yesterday, but I completely spaced on getting any of the wines. So these guys have them. Does it have like a description that says Piquette is this or something, or is it, pretty much up to people to kind of figure it out or it's let, me, let me read to you the side of the can right now okay so cool. it is a little sour this is the um orange contact sparkling wine new york state 2019 and it says on the front label sort of like a uh like it was a batman episode from the old you know old batman where it's like blam Pow. Pow. Boom. Piquette. um <laughs> and, and it says a little sour uh that's what it this traditional beverage is. We take the pomace from our winemaking, soak it in water for one to two weeks and press it again. The second pressing then ferments naturally into a tart refreshing beverage. We add back some of the original wine and re-ferment it all in this can to add bubbles. 
It's like a wine cooler. It's like if a wine cooler was actually cool. <laughs> I might have snuck that one by the TTB. I don't know if that's disparaging to other brands. That, that one wasn't on the copy that you sent to the TTB, but it is on the one. <laughs> no, it was. It was. They just didn't say anything. It, yeah. it, it, went, ac it went across the right desk. That yeah, exactly. Um, so, so, Todd, uh, a little bit for, for, for myself and the other winemakers listening. So uh, goes into the tank for a couple weeks on the skins. Yep. Um, and, and starts to ferment on its own a little bit. So, I mean, there, there's a difference when you're doing red pumice and white because the red that we usually right. ferment our reds to dryness. And so when you're soaking the reds, um, essentially you're just extracting that last bit of alcohol that didn't get pressed out and then the color and tannin and, and the other compounds from the skins that are left. Um, whereas with the whites, if there's fermentable sugars in there still, then it'll actually start fermenting uh, with the water add. And we have to be careful because with the water add, you know, we're lucky that our pHs and our, are, are pretty low and our TAs are pretty high at harvest. Uh, but when you add the water, that pH jumps up. And so when you get kind of up above 3.5, 3.6, you get a lot more lactic acid bacterial activity. And that's what right. makes it interesting. That's where you get the kind of funky um, parts of the flavor profile that are closer to kombucha or sour beer. Um, but you have to make sure they don't go wild because you can kind of go off the rails a little bit. Um, so with the whites, what we started doing this year is we, we will soak them in a VC tank and we'll kind of push the lid down to submerge the cap and then we'll seal it. And we don't do any punch downs or anything. We just let it infuse for that week or two. Um, right. You know, in a reductive environment, you don't get as much of that lactic acid bacterial activity. But that right. is the stuff that makes it, you know, makes it interesting and makes it cool. And so we sent some off to our friend's lab in, uh, in Ontario a couple of years ago. And, you know, he found what we expected. There's a couple of different lactose strains. There's uh, oenococcus and there's even some uh, pediococcus in there. And a lot of these tanks will get uh, kind of a film yeast on the surface, which most winemakers would see and be like, oh, get it out of here, burn it, burn the tank, never use it again. Um, but after the first year, we kind of realized that that's just what the, you know, the yeast and bacterial cultures will do at that higher pH. So we let it ride and then uh. make sure not to get it into our wine barrels. <laughs> Yeah, you've got like a floor on top of the, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. And yeah. does it, and yeah, go ahead. I was going to say they look different depending on, you know, what the, what the combination of cultures is. Sometimes it's like a very thin uh, calm yeast. Like if you've ever made pickles and gotten that like kind of thick white yeast on the surface. And sometimes it's a little more, uh, you know, ropey if it's got the PDO going dominant. But yeah, it's really interesting to watch every year. So, so, I mean, it's a lacto ferment. It's, this is the same like if you were gonna make, obviously you said kombucha. If you make sauerkraut, these things that are are essentially anaerobic fermentations, right? Uh, no, they they are uh, aerobic, but some of the some of the I guess some of the strains are anaerobic too. Um, but uh, it is, it's, I would call it closer to like a brewer's call like a mixed ferment because there is Saccharomyces in there. There's probably a little Brett in there too. Um, and then, you know, depending on what the temperature does, certain things will take the lead. Um, but I, I think the Saccharomyces still does uh, prim uh, primary alcohol fermentation, and then you just get some other flavor compounds from the other stuff. Um, we don't have temperature control in our barn, so we're not heating or cooling anything. But for the most part, our stuff comes in 
mid-September to mid-October, and then, you know, two weeks after the primary for the wine, we're talking October, November for the times that these are fermenting. So for the most part, the barn at that point is 55. Um, so we're, we're lucky in that we have that natural kind of cooling that happens when the piquette is fermenting. And then yeah, when you're- I think, I, I think I'm gonna stick to, um, stick to my wines and drinking your piquettes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like we said though, this, I would drink, I would drink this 79 times out of 80 over a, a hard seltzer category. Yeah, I'll, I mean, yeah. it's a lawnmower wine, which, you know, it's hard to get otherwise. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I, I'm, I, I, as much as I love beer, I've still not had anyone introduce me to a sour beer that I've truly, you know, like enjoyed. Um, and, and, and this is to, does not remind me of a sour beer, but I do get a little bit of sourness, which is really uh, intriguing and, and really adds to it. So, Todd, I, and I think Bart did the same thing. We opened them and poured them into glasses. And now I'm like, and I drank the first cup. Now I'm like starting to think about it more as like a wine tasting experience. Would you recommend to your customer to just, you know, crack this, take it to the beach? Or do you think, you know, in your experience, do you like it more out of the can? Do you like it out of a glass? Does it not really matter? Pour it into like an old jelly jar. You'll be really happy. What's the, what's your Yeah, point? I mean, I, it, it doesn't matter. And I tell people like, you know, do what you want with it. Put it on ice, make a cocktail out of it, whatever. Um, I, I, I like it different ways, you know, in different uh, times. If I'm on the mower, I'll crack a can and just drink it out of the can. If I'm having it with dinner and I want to like, you know, drink it with some cheese or something, I'll put it in a glass just to get a little more of those aromatics. Uh, this one specifically, this orange this year, it's a combination of Riesling and Chardonnay that both got just really stone fruity in the tank. And so, you know, I kind of like being able to get some of that, you know, yummy estery stuff on the nose with a- uh, Well, with, and, you know. and it, there's no doubt. I mean, the aromatics coming out of the glass are beautiful and that's definitely lost in the can, um, but, but it still tastes delicious. It's, you know, very crushable um, uh, out of the can without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Works either way. Uh, hey, what, is, what are the soils right. like that you're growing in out there? You mentioned you had one acre here and then down the road another acre and up another acre. What are the soils like? How are they different? So um, I will say that the Hudson River region is kind of enormous and it doesn't really have its own single signature. Um, it really, we say it basically runs from the Bronx to Albany. Um, so it's like, you know, 200 miles stretch of the eastern side of New York State. Where we are, we are southeast of both the Catskill Mountain Range and then closer to us, there's the Shawangunk Ridge, um, which is just this big white cliff face that's all quartz and granite. And so most of the soils around here are decomposed granite. It's pretty loamy. Um, but there's all of this glacial till because the glaciers that basically carved um, the Finger Lakes, you know, kept coming further south and dumped all of this till from all over the place. So really, we can't say we've got like only granitic soils here because even when we were planting out there, we were finding all sorts of weird uh, silex and other larger stones that kind of were, you know, big four feet around stones that we had to pull out that were like not granite, not quartz. Um, just like no, really the, weird. The glaciers brought those to you. Yeah, yeah. So um, for the most part, they say decomposed granite um, and and loam, um, but it's really kind of a mishmash of all sorts of different stones that are in there if you if you go digging. Well, um, it sounds like it's, it can be very rich and very good. So yeah, I'm trying to. Territory. 
trying to plant some gamay here. That's my, that's my, my plan Excellent. for, for New York red wine. And our friends at uh, Whitecliff winery have a, a big planting of it um, up a little further about an hour north of here. And we're going to get some of their fruit to play with this year, but I think we want to plant that back in our vineyard before we stop planting here. I'm, I'm still kind of curious about the hybrid thing. So like you were saying, is Cornell kind of like our UC Davis? Like they, Yes, exactly. They have a, okay. a, a Vit Eno program. They, they have a, an extension that works with all the growers across the state. Um, and yeah, it's a really great resource for figuring those things out. So then uh, how do, how do, on Facebook, Todd. Oh, cool. all right. So where, like, what are they crossing? You're saying hybrid, but like, what did it, what is it that they're taking that is existing? And then what is it that they're doing to so they've been doing it for so long that everything that gets released now is such a complex hybrid that they can give you like, you know, 12 parents um, that have been involved and some of them have never been released commercially. So they're like just numbers. Um, and so, you know, Marquette, for example, it's got a, a bunch of um, uh, American grapes that are hybridized and then like somewhere in there is uh, Pinot Noir. And so all the people like to point to like the one you know, uh, for a grape that's in the parentage. Right. I don't like to do that because I think it sets your expectations in a very specific way. I'd, I'd rather right. let the grapes do the talking. I mean, and that's another thing that has changed a lot in the last 10 years, you know, with the growth of natural wine and the ex exception of, or accepting of wines from all over the world. Like you're, you're suddenly drinking wines that you've never heard the name of before, even if they're vinifera grapes from Eastern Europe or whatever. Um, and so that lets us like put out something called Marquette and not have people go like Marquette, sorry, it's not Pinot Noir. I don't want it. Um, so that market again has been opened up and broadened by, you know, the, the change in the general consumer trends lately. So then what at, at um, Cornell do they, so initially they have it planted and then some of the students or um, professors there or whatever, they kind of play around with it and see what they can, what kind of wine they can make out of it before they, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think, you know, they'll, it's a, it's a big, long, extended 15, 20 year process where, where they will wow. take, um, I mean, they'll do specific crosses, um, but they'll also take seedling crosses from their, you know, nursery stock and they'll plant, you know, rows of hundreds of seedlings and they'll let them all grow. They'll let them all produce fruit, you know, three to four years and then they'll start making wine from that fruit. And if they like something, they'll say, okay, let's take some cuttings from this one and plant a couple rows of it. And then they'll let that grow for three to four years until it's producing. And then they'll make a larger sample uh, batch of wine from that. And then at some point someone says, all right, this is pretty good. Let's release it. And they release it commercially and start nurturing it and send it, sending it to other nurseries. So then you have access to some of those wines that they've made from those grapes before you purchase it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They, they, I mean, the, the Hudson Valley wine and grape growers association meets all often in, well, they used to before we couldn't meet in person and people get to taste each other's wines. But then um, there are lots of events that Cornell puts on for wine growers and, and other fruit growers in the region. And people kind of bring those sample wines and sometimes the school is making them themselves. And sometimes people get access to that fruit and they get to make them. Um, and they're usually pretty, you know, traditionally made I, well let's not say traditionally usually it's like a pretty standard like pitched yeast 35 ppm sulfur some nutrient you know like just make a just like standard, baseline right yeah baseline wine so right. it's hard to say like 
okay, if I'm going to natively ferment it with little to no sulfur, is it going to do the same thing? So we won't know for five years what's actually going to happen once we make those wines. <laughs> well, yeah. well, the other thing, a lot of those, a lot of those experimental things at colleges or universities, they're not big lots. They're not like production um, size things. Sometimes they're five gallon buckets or 10 gallon buckets. Right. Yeah. Oh, crap. So, it's so, hard to say so what's going to happen in a, in a barrel. Yeah, exactly. In a exactly. Plastic right. bucket. And who gets to name this? Like, who, who came up with Marquette? Uh, I forget who, who was the, but it's usually the, the, the great breeder or the scientist or the, you know, the, the probably went to Marquette. Isn't Marquette like a basketball school? That's, something? that's, that's what I was wondering. Marquette Chicago. is a school in Michigan, I think. That, uh, Wisconsin, yeah. north so, yeah. of, uh, north oh, of Milwaukee. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure where the name came from. Uh, it, you know, Itasca is a, is a, a native name. So a lot of the New York grapes get those, you know, Cayuga, um, and, uh, save all is not, I don't know, but yeah, there's, I don't, whoever makes it, I guess gets to name it. Um, mm. and there's a, yeah, there's a guy from, uh, from university of Minnesota who did most of the stuff in the sixties and seventies and I'm forgetting his name, but he's got some named after himself, some named after his daughter and then some just fanciful stuff too. Wasn't that a thing that Randall Graham was doing out here? He was. That's exactly what I was going to say. Randall's yeah. uh I think is how you pronounce it. His, his vineyard project out there in like Hollister area is kind of a, a version of this. You know, he's growing vinifera varieties for the most part, but he's growing them from seed and will, you know, the idea is to kind of breed things and crossbreed things and create, uh, a grape variety that is um, perfectly adapted to that vineyard site. I mean, I'm sort yeah. of synopsing quickly his his plan there. Um, and so that is, you know, a, a sort of on a smaller scale, exactly what these universities are doing, Brian, is, is figuring out growing from seed, which, you know, basically grapevines don't grow from, grapes don't grow from seed unless you work at it really hard. Um, and so they're growing from seed and it's, you know, a little bit of natural selection, whatever grows up, um, obviously is something that's going to survive that soil, that weather. And then you go from there, you know, the things that survive breeding those with other things that survive and, and making things that, uh, actually survive and hopefully taste good. I mean, that's the, those are the, you know, when you get that to cross, that's, that's the goal. Cause things that survive and things that actually make good wine aren't always necessarily going to be the same thing. So. Right. right. And, then, and then doesn't it change it? To, so let's say I took a Chardonnay grape, let's say from one of the vineyards, Sam, that you're sourcing out of. And then I took the seed out of the grape and planted that in my backyard. I got it to grow. Wouldn't it be a different strain than the one that it came from? Like for some reason it like changes it, right? It, sort of. Slowly. Yeah. They can't, they can't, um, they can express so many different genes within their family tree. And so, you know, even if it was pollinated by the same clone of Chardonnay, the way that it would express its genes, it's, it's, I'm, I know this mostly from apples and the way that apples are propagated. So it's the same for grapes. As far as I know, they could express all of these, you know, hundreds of different genes in any way they wanted to. And, to get it to express, you know, close to both parents is very difficult. And so you've got, you know, you can plant something that's the exact same clone pollinated to the exact same clone 
and it'll be whatever it wants to be um, within that kind of parentage. And that that's like what Randall was doing. He su supposedly, I mean, it was a GoFundMe page when he started this whole thing. And part of it was if you, if you um, sent money in, you would have a grape varietal that was named after you could pick the name because at the end of the day, his goal was to have like 30,000 different varieties because they'd all be different every time he kept planning. We need to do that, Brian. Well, we Randall is, the podcast. <laughs> you know, you got to remember Randall is, um, he's a mad scientist with the vines and the wines, but you know, uh, and with all due respect, you know, one of the greats of California is probably his best skill is, is marketing. So <laughs> the, exactly. the, that's, you know, a big part of what's going on there is, is the genius of Randall Graham marketing to, uh, right. you know, to basically give him something, you know, an exit strategy from Bonnie Dune. I mean, that's... And, I, and he's very well funded. Right. Right. Like, really? Man, it's amazing yeah, how much money so helps funny. you start a winery. Exactly. <laughs> how much money helps you get more money to start a winery? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so are you know, I'm opening the recital. I can't stand it any longer. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to the next piquette here, um, which is the Rosato sparkling wine. Uh, hey, wait, what, what varietal is that from? It doesn't, uh, doesn't say. It doesn't uh, say, uh, and that's because there's probably 15 different uh, varieties in there. Okay. So we do. Uh, there's a vineyard that we uh, farm up by the Capital Region that I mentioned. That's the one that's been fully organic since 2018. And there's a block that's a co-planting of over a dozen different hybrid varieties, red, white, and green, all co-planted, all co-harvested, co-fermented. And so we make a real like Italian Rosato field blend style wine out of it. And so the piquette from that goes into this along with a little bit of Riesling and Cab Franc. Um, so really there's like 15 plus varieties in there. Okay. And what, I mean, it's got this amazing color, Brian. I don't know if you can see this. Oh yeah, that's pretty. It's pretty. Um, and I will say for this is, uh, I'm in a new space for us here at our tasting house. Um, so I've just now spilled the first wine on the floor here. <laughs> Perfect. L'chaim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's super pretty color that um a little less aromatic but a little more structure on this one um, yeah a little more like actual skin tannin um and people say that you can't you can't get the same kind of uh structure and um interesting tannins from hybrid grape skins that you can get from uh vinifera and so i think the cab franc and the Riesling in there kind of helped that along a little bit. Um, I mean, how many years have you made Piquette now? Uh, we, we've made, this will be our fourth vintage this year, making Piquette. Yeah. And, you know, this one, to me, it, it definitely has a little more funk to it. Um, and it probably could be that it, it's been sitting on my, on my table here for a little while. It's not quite as cold as I'd probably love it, but... Um, and I also, I forgot to ship them overnight. So these went UPS ground in the heat of the summer. So they actually, they travel pretty well. They don't get too messed up, but you know. Well, and you know, once actually this last week or two, once you got out of New York, um, the weather for shipping wine was not terrible. We've been in a great weather pattern here um, for, for a few weeks of, you know, the fog rolling in in the morning, burning off. It's, you know, clear now at noon. Um, and then it'll come back in at about seven or eight tonight and 
keeping it, you know, below 90. Um, it's, this is like perfect. This is perfect California summer weather as far as yeah, I'm see, It's been yeah. above 90 here for a week and I'm out there dying in the vines. Wow. Right. Yeah. Keep, you got to get some of those uh, Dane Sellers beer koozies to keep your piquette cold while you're <laughs> working on the tractor. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll send you some, Todd. I'll send you some. Perfect. Well, what, Todd, what else you got growing out there? What else have you got out on the farm? I and mean, what kind of animals or what, what are you guys so doing we're, on that? We're, we're, we're finally getting our chickens in the next couple of weeks. Those will be our first animals. I built a coop last spring and we just have not gotten around to getting everything together yet. Um, so that'll be our first experiment with animals and we're going to get some bees next season. I don't know if we're going to do four-legged animals anytime soon. So as far as, you know, biodynamic farming goes, we're, we're kind of half-assing it because we're bringing in our um, biodynamic sprays from Josephine Porter, which is it's not a closed system at that point. But uh, eventually we'll get there. And then we, we did market vegetables for a couple of years, sold some stuff to our friends' restaurants down in the city, and that kind of was a nightmare and didn't make any money. So we just grow vegetables and fruit <laughs> for ourselves at this point. Yeah. So we've got, you know, corn, melons, squash, strawberries, lettuces, peppers, tomatoes, eggplant, usual. Yeah, I think the only way to make money on that produce is, um, you know, who does a good job out here is Jackson family. Because um, they've got a guy, they, they, they have perfect little things and they, the way they package them. And then they, you only sell them to like three-star Michelin restaurants that are willing to pay $3 yeah. per radish or whatever it is. It's yeah, the so only way was, you can, and then and even then you got to share transportation with, you know, like Jim Reichardt from, and his ducks. You got to kind of hop on the truck with him, so you guys can kind of share the transport costs. I mean, that's it's a tough gig, if, but I think having people come visit during that time of year that would be able to taste through your wines and then buy some of the produce that came off the property would be super cool. Yeah, that's definitely going to happen now, uh, and I kind of just been you know, planting new stuff and figuring it out every year because I knew at some point we would have full food service on the farm and I want to be able to do food that we grow here and sell it. So I've been learning my way around the garden so that I can eventually supply our little restaurant or whatever. Well, you we guys have would have time. a pretty cool like winemaker dinner too. If you had a chef out there that could use the stuff off the property and drink the wines off the property, that'd be nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we have, uh, I've been perfecting every year this trellis garden so one of the hoop houses they're 15 feet wide like eight feet tall um, i have mesh netting up the sides and we trellis squash and cucumbers and melons up those cool. all the way up so you make this tunnel of green and then you've got all the cucumbers and squash and melons hanging inside it awesome. i'm going to put a long table under that and have uh, harvest dinners whenever it's allowed to have dinner with people again that sounds very cool what a great Doesn't idea it? that sounds but, awesome it, todd now it says on the on your website that you used to grow vegetables and herbs on your fire escape in Brooklyn. Yeah. When, when the squirrels didn't get it, are you still having trouble with the squirrels in the upstate New York? Now it's deer and groundhogs. But um, I've got a little twenty-two that'll take care of the groundhogs and the deer. We just kind of chase away. I'm not allowed to shoot them. Um, but uh, yeah, it's critters. There's a, actually, we had a family of foxes that lived on the property for the first couple of years. And then uh, they, they lived in the burn pile that the old owners left behind. So when we finally got rid of that burn pile, the foxes moved out. So now we've got like seven rabbits that live on the property because there's no foxes to take care of them and the groundhog nice. exploded. Hey, I got a suggestion for the deer. What they do, um, there's a retirement community over here in Santa Rosa and the, the people got tired of the deer coming up and eating some of their gardens. So they... They put a simple sprinkler uh, uh, that's attached to a motion sensor. 
Yes, and, and I then just the bought motion, one. <laughs> perfect. And those yeah. deer, they just kind of freaks them out. The sprinkler goes on once or twice. They run away, and you're done. Yeah, I have uh, I have like the noise making and flashing things that they basically learn like doesn't do anything. But the sprinkler yeah. I've been reading is the way to go. So I ordered one a couple of days ago. We'll see. Yeah, they get they get trained to noise. They're like, ah, that's that's the noise now. We we we've caught on to that. But when they when yeah. they're getting wet, that just kind of pisses you off. Yeah, I also I finally am getting um, post fence posts to put deer fencing for the whole perimeter of the orchard and the vineyard. So that'll be done hopefully by the end of this year. Yeah, because are they eating your grapes or are you covering them? So this is the first year that we've got any kind of little bit of crop. Um, and so they haven't touched anything yet. Um, and there's probably few enough out there. Yeah, and they're not ripe yet. So we're, birds are a huge problem out here. So we'll probably end up doing bird netting um, next year once we actually have a fuller crop coming in. Um, but yeah. this year, we just kind of kind of let everything go and see what happens. And then and with have, your with your chickens in the wintertime, what do you what do you do? Do you got to bring them inside or something or put them in the barn? Uh, so I built a movable coop that I insulated. Um, so you just put a little, you, all they really need is like an incandescent lamp in there uh, and it keeps it warm enough. They generate a lot of their own heat. So with the insulation and the lamp, it'll be warm enough for them to survive, but they won't be able to really, you can let them out and they'll forage and they'll kind of dig under the, the snow and look for grubs and stuff, but you have to supplement their feed in the winter. Interesting. But yeah, the whole idea is they'll, we have a huge problem with Japanese beetles here. They'll defoliate the entire vineyard if we're not um, controlling for them. And so uh, the, the chickens will let range in the vineyard all spring when the grubs are coming up and hopefully they'll be able to eat the no grubs. No way. The beetles. So the Perfect. chickens will be running in between the vines eating. Yeah. So the movable coop, you kind of move down the end of the vineyard every day and then you put like an electric mesh netting you know, four or 500 square feet of space for them to run in every couple of days. You just move it down throughout and uh, then they fertilize the vines, they eat the insects and- Awesome. That's the, that's the goal. Cycle of life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I had to buy in some chicken manure from a local farm this year. It smells bad when it's in a big pile. It doesn't smell good when it's in a little pile. <laughs> yeah, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, the, my three-year-old hopefully will be old enough to clean out the coop by next year, we'll see. Ouch. That's and that's really the key to any successful wine business I've learned is child labor. Child so. labor, exactly. <laughs> well, how's Althea doing? Have you put her out there? How old is she now, Sam? She's uh she's seventeen months right now. Uh and ready? She's um you know, we get her in the garden. She's been the I took her out into a vineyard right around bud break. She was just starting to walk and she went and like every bud that she touched, she broke off. So I, I, just, I just stopped doing that. Um, well, she got she got your dad's gene. She never seen a vineyard. She didn't want to just rip out. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> you're fine. Uh, she has a little bit of my dad's hair too. Uh, she's like an indiscriminate leafer at this point. I think that uh, we're not. You know, she has the tactile skills, but you know, doesn't really know what to pull quite yet. So we're 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 working on her. She's got you know. By next vintage, by next summer, we'll you know we'll put her to work. She'll be just the right she'll be just the right height to reach up a little bit and pick the grapes. Perfect. Yeah, no, it's definitely um, there's a lot of advantages to to short people in, in <laughs> no matter what age they are. So um, for farming, yeah. I, I um I took Dane with me a couple weeks ago to go top some barrels. He's done come with me before and done punch downs and stuff, but Robin to top barrels and he just couldn't get over the concept that 
it spilling it on the ground lost money. Like he just wouldn't do it. I'd, I'd show him how to do it. He'd go, okay, I got it. Leave me alone. I'd turn around. He'd be pouring it on the ground. So, <laughs> and let's be clear, Dane is a teenager. So. Yeah. <laughs> it was basically like this, yeah. Dad. Did you guys catch that on our on our last podcast, uh, Todd? We had Guy Eschel, who is a winemaker in Israel, and we were talking about um, the labor force, you know, during harvest. Did you guys catch that? What he said that there are teenagers that actually want to come out in the vineyard and work, and that I was like, what? what? Teenagers, interesting. Yeah. Teenagers that want to come out in the vineyard and work. So different culture, Brian. We need we Way. need a little more. Of that here. We need some Israeli kids over here, man. We'll bring them. We'll find them. Well, lab labor in the vineyards is a new uh, hot point lately, so yeah. we don't have to get into the uh, the deep side of that discussion. But child labor, totally fine. But slave labor, <laughs> less so. Yeah. Oh, wait. So you have to pay your children to work at... All right. <laughs> Consider this man. Oh, no, no. You, you pay them with, with uh, food and a uh, house. Right. Although Damn that's right. the, that's the I think that's the same argument that some of these other folks that are taking advantage of their workers will use. So maybe not. Yeah, right. Well, I remember meeting a French winemaker, and he said about having labor come in, and I said, "Well, what sort of labor force do you have?" And he says, "Well, a lot of locals, but then there's this whole group of Algerians, and like he was referencing the Algerians were second class, you know, citizens at the time." Yeah, that wouldn't go over in this day and age, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, so, I mean, the reason we haven't hired anyone yet and we still do everything ourselves or with friends and family is because we have to make sure that we can afford to pay somebody a living wage and, you know, get them health insurance. And I don't have health insurance right now, so I yeah. can't be paying for anyone else's just yet. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's a big part of the sustainability discussion, I think, that sometimes gets overlooked. So, well, you know, Todd, you said you didn't want to get into the, the heavy side of, of uh, the lack of employees in the field, um, but you are involved in a lot of different things. You've got some anti-racist readings on your website. That's very interesting. I haven't seen that. So both nonfiction and fiction and journalism. So you guys are obviously uh, attuned to what's going on in the country. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's I think it's important, you know, like I said, with our, you know, with our pricing, trying to make our wines accessible, I think that should extend to being accessible to everyone and the wine world in general hasn't always been super um, open and accessible to everyone. And so that should be everyone of every stripe from every background. And, uh, and yeah, and that means thinking about the people that are, are doing the hard labor in the fields and whether they have a you know, path towards uh, upward mobility in the industry and ownership and eventually doing their own thing or whether it's, you know, they're relegated to manual labor and kind of thought of as just a, a workforce. You've got um, a yeah. great book. I don't have to get too Marxist, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a great book listed here called Farming While Black. Yeah, oh yeah, that's great. Should be really interesting read. Yeah. Yeah. So there, yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, talk lately um, and it should have been going on for a long time about how um, the black farmland has been basically decimated in the last uh, 40 years. And, you know, we have, we have friends who are uh, farming wine now for the first time in, in Vermont. Um, 
who are are black and doing really amazing stuff in the industry. And uh, yeah, and that's Soulfire Farm. They're right up north here in New York State, and they've been doing really great stuff with with uh, mentorship and training and teaching other people how to farm and uh, and trying to get more people on the land who may not have had access to it who who really should. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things, and we're hopefully going to have some other guests in the next few weeks to kind of talk about some of these issues a little bit more. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm not the one to talk about it. I'm just another white dude. <laughs> yeah, no, but but I think that you just hit on something, Todd. That um, to me is one of the biggest challenges that we face in the in the wine business. You know, there are paths to get into the industry on the sales side, and you know, there's certainly obstacles and and more work to be done there, but on the sales side, maybe a little bit on the production side, but without access to land and to, you know, a, a, even, you know, we joke about the child labor thing, but, you know, to grow up in a vineyard, to grow up farming is probably the best way to sort of instill in, you know, somebody what it takes to, to farm. Uh, and, you know, we have a significant issue with, with access uh, to, you know, all communities in that regard. So finding ways, to get more people into the dirt um, is is 100% key to to opening up this whole world um, in ways that you know haven't been haven't been opened in a long time. So exciting stuff happening now. I get you know now it's instead of light reading and heavy wine, I'm going to go some heavy reading and some piquet <laughs> to kind of balance it out. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then I don't want to you know I'm not going to drink a big Syrah and and also. Uh, you know, a, a heavy book on <laughs> black, but uh, you know, skin contact, uh, piquette, you know, something to kind of to, to keep it uplifted a little bit. That sounds like a good combo. <laughs> totally. I, I would say we could move on to the heavier wine, but even the the red wines aren't. That yeah, heavy. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go get my Marquette out of the uh, fridge. So this yeah. is the one that you said that there is. It's a red wine, but you told us it's uh, serve it lightly chilled. Sort of like you would do with a Beaujolais. Um. Yeah, so the first year that we worked with Marquette, I hadn't had a lot of Marquettes that I really loved. And so we kind of wanted to give it three different treatments and see how it did the best. And so that year we did like a Rosato Petnat style. We did a full carbonic maceration. And then we did a, a full whole cluster. Um, and Wow, you just went based. to the extremes. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. Um, I mean, we do a lot of whole cluster with all of our reds, so uh, that's less weird for us. It is okay. less, it's weirder for New York State. People don't tend to use a lot of uh, stems here because they're afraid, you know, we can't get grapes ripe, but I don't, I don't yeah. necessarily agree with that. I think the um, phenolic ripening and the sugar ripening curves are not exactly aligned. So yeah. even if we're only coming in at 21 bricks, I still think we've got skin, stem, and seed ripeness um, happening. Right. But essentially, yeah, the Carbonic Marquette, uh, I think it really took to it. So we did it again this year. Um, and we do full two weeks uh, sealed in a stainless tank. Um, we didn't do any CO2 or dry ice this time. We just let the juice at the bottom that started fermenting kind of blanket the tank and just left it for two weeks. And then we uh, cracked it open and got in there and foot tread it and let it macerate for another two weeks on the skins and stems and then pressed into old oak barrels um, and four to five months before we got into bottle. So it's like a nouveau style that took a little longer to get there. Right. And I always want to ask whose feet do people volunteer? We get, yeah, we get a lot of volunteers at harvest time. Um, and you know, we make sure that they, 
have showered and then step in a bucket of sanitizer before they get yeah. in the grapes. <laughs> yeah, that's a thing. For some reason, a lot of people that come during harvest, they, they ask me that even on, you know, that we have in dinner and they'll say, do you know anywhere that we can go crush grapes with our feet? And I'm yeah. just picturing all these wineries that I, that I go to, the legal ramifications of letting them near any production equipment. <laughs> like, so Bart and I, I think, talked about it, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, just about having one of those, you know, a half barrel um, that you can pot your, you know, put your plants in or whatever. And yeah. it being like a tourist thing where you could say, okay, now come on, and we'll just grab a bunch of grapes that are still hanging out in the vineyard and just let people come over and stomp them and get their little Instagram photo. I blame yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we just do ours in macro bins and, you know, get two or three people in there. Right. <laughs> feel safe enough. I mean, and Brian, you always seem to forget that no human pathogens can grow in wine. So, you know, everything's dead after the fermentation process. Anyway, that include, so. including foot fungus is what you're saying. Mark. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I haven't seen the data on that, Bart, if athletes' feet can actually survive in the wine. But, I, you know, until I see a report, and for me, it's more about just the the aesthetic of it. I, I don't mind. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Let's just say guys' feet and legs aren't very attractive sometimes. Well, I'm looking at my own feet right now. I know I don't want to drink anything I've been crushing. <laughs> okay. Let's get back to the wine. Back to the wine. Um, I mean, the, the Beaujolais comparison is pretty apt here yeah juicy you know got a little yeah. banana strawberry candy stuff and then a little bit of a little bit of spice and herbs from the stems yeah but yeah just a you know 11 percent wine yeah interestingly you know like the piquette rosato they have more tannin than than yeah. this does um so yeah that's like i'm saying this marquette is only the hybrid and people say that you can't get as much of the structure from the skins of hybrid grapes um so yeah so that's why we the whole cluster version of this that we do um we put some of it in new chestnut barrels um so we get a little bit of structure from that but without that kind of vanilla oakiness wait 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 wait. how how much does a chestnut barrel cost uh, same as a good uh, new French oak barrel, but well, uh, okay. 900 bucks, so maybe a little less. Holy crap. Uh, How did you decide to do that? I actually had purchased two chestnut barrels to use for cider um, in 2018 and couldn't get enough apples to do as much cider as I wanted to that year. So I ended up putting cider in one of the barrels and then the other one I just had sitting there during harvest. And when the last of this Marquette came in, I was like, oh, why don't we put some of it in there and see what happens. Um, and then, you know, I managed to, we did a whole cluster maceration with an eye towards building a more structured wine to see what would happen. And uh, it wasn't quite there when we pressed it off after five weeks. So I was like, yeah, let's put it in that chestnut barrel, see if we can get a little bit more, you know, wood tannin in there. Um, not knowing exactly what the, you know, the scent profile or the flavor profile from chestnut yeah. would be with a red wine. Um, but, you know, they've been using chestnut in Italy for, hundreds of years so i figured why not give it a shot yeah i was uh, I'm yeah. thinking in in white wines that would be kind of cool like to get some of that nutty flavor um but is it a tighter grain like is it a, is it a denser um i mean i think it's it's comparable to french oak so as far as like the the oxygen transfer and the the general like structure transition that you're getting from the barrel it's it's like a, a tight grain french oak barrel huh cool 
Yeah, so this was the second year using that, uh, those for this, not this wine, but the version of the set will come out in the fall. Um, so yeah, I'll have to send you guys one of those to check out too. You're going to send us a chestnut barrel? Sweet! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you want the, the barrels from my winery. We, we do a lot of native ferments. We're pretty clean though. I got a big okay. barrel steamer. <laughs> send it full. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, put it on so, yeah, the train. Tra transfer in bond. We'll see if we can do a transfer in bond through the TTB. Right. I'm actually supposed to get a 55-gallon drum of neutral grain spirits delivered today for our uh, distillery project. Wait, what are you doing? Uh, well, we just got our DSP license, but I only have like a tiny little 25-gallon still. Um, and so we have hundreds of black walnut trees on the farm. And so are I've you been making, making no cello? Yeah, no chino. I've been making no a little chino. bit every every season uh, just for friends and family, but this year we're going to up it into a commercial version. And Very then we nice. have back uh, as the understory in the, the orchard, we have a bunch of um, spiced kind of bushes that grow in cooler climates. We can't grow cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, any of that stuff here. So we've got like uh, Carolina allspice, spice bush, northern bayberry, all the things that kind of approximate those flavors in cold climates. Mm. So we're going to be doing some Amaro experiments this year. And then we've got tons of different Artemisia and Sage and Gentian. So. Wait, who comes up with these ideas? Uh, I don't Both of us. Yeah. You're just curious and you just want to play around at stuff you enjoy. And so you figure, let's do it at home. Yeah. I mean, we have land. Let's plant some stuff and see what we yeah. can do. And I, there's a lot more kind awesome. of... Um, idea exchange in the wine beer spirits and cider worlds now um, at least on the east coast i don't know if it's you know across the board but you know i have friends who are making spirits all over new york and you know distilling and doing extractions and infusions and so i can talk to them and be like oh you made no chino this year how'd it go did you add any adjuncts are you using yeah. any you know, cinnamon and so uh yeah we can we can learn from each other well part of it too is the sustainable part of it i remember you guys, you guys know John Kelly, the winemaker um, here yeah. in Sonoma. He just at one point was driving by these walnut trees every year and noticed that no one was using them. And so he finally just went up and asked the people, hey, can I take all these walnuts? And he did the same thing. He was doing the Nochino. And the same thing with the Paquette. I love the idea of, and you even talked about the grappa, is using that must one more time. Like, let's, let's get maximized what we can get out of out of this stuff that's coming out of the ground it's super cool yeah i mean and it's getting more out of each acre of land too so you're you know you're not having to plant more and more to make more product you can make more product right. with what you've got already yeah. when you send that full barrel out here also include a couple of your t-shirts <laughs> you know the new york fucking wine t-shirt i thought oh yeah yeah it's classic man <laughs> Straight from the straight from uh, Canal Street, the New York fucking city shirts. We we ripped them off. Luckily, I don't think anyone has a trademark on that. Yeah, uh, it's not their trademark. I would. No, it's great T-shirt. Sam, they got a a, a baby onesie for uh, Althea. Oh, good. Well, cat. We've got to go up bigger than onesies now, man. She's uh, she's in the two T and three T stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can send you some hand me downs from Luca then, our daughter. That's what I was going to say. We don't <laughs> Crit Crystal um, used to work for a children's wear designer. So we have like a lot of this amazing children's clothing that we've been amassing over the years. So, uh, and they wear them like three times before they grow out of it, right? Right. So and they get berry juice all over it when they're eating berries in the yard and it's stained forever. So. Oh, I do that. So what the hell? <laughs> we, we appreciate pre-stained clothing. Then we don't feel so bad when we stain them, right? That's right. Exactly. 
All right, you guys. Dude, what? How do we get a hold of some? Obviously, you sent wines to us, um, but if people out here want to try any of these things that we were trying on the show today, is there distribution out here, or is it so small that you got to go right through you? So um, either we are with Amy Atwood in California, but I don't know if uh, a lot of it makes it out of Los Angeles. Um, but you know, if you're looking for it wholesale, you can reach out to uh, Amy Atwood um, and see if she's got anything left from the spring release. Fall release will be coming September, October. Um, but we do uh, we do a mailing list style. You know, we borrow that from you West Coast guys. Twice a year, we do a release online. Um, we don't do like mandatory purchasing. It's just if you're on the list, you get the link to the you know secret shopping cart, and you get a week to buy whatever you want. We do limit, so you you know you can't some of the stuff that's more limited. You can only get one or two bottles of. But first come, first serve for a week to anyone who's on the list, and then uh, we close it down, and then the rest of it goes off to distribution afterwards, or we keep some on the farm here for local purchasing too. Right. Yeah. What's yeah, it been like uh, lately? I mean, have you had many people come and buy and? We, so we have, we, we don't really advertise it, but people just reach out and say, Hey, are you open? Can you, can we come by? And, um, we just have been scheduling visits by appointment. We've probably done about a dozen in the last few weeks. Um, you know, mostly just we come, we walk around tour the farm and then if they want to buy some bottles to go, we do that. Um, and since our stuff is mostly sold out in the New York stores now, people are like, Oh, I want to get out of the city anyway. I'll go up and buy yeah. some directly from you guys. Nice. And we make a lot more money that way. Yeah. Asking for a friend, is there more or of the skin contact piquette you can send us? Uh, <laughs> very little. We got we have like four cases left, and I still have to fulfill some of our pickup orders. But yeah, we can we can slide slice off a four pack at least. All right, I, I know a guy. Who wants All right. <laughs> well, yeah, we can did, we can trade some stuff. There yeah. you go. Wait, That's did it. you guys did you guys save me any of that, or is it all gone? No, no. There's there's a a bottle of Marquette. And then one each of the of the piquettes here for you. All right, yeah, I, I only uh, had a, a, st a six pack styro shipper, and I wanted to send it in styrofoam for the heat, and uh, so I only sent th a three of everything, or one of one of three. Okay, I'll be over in twenty minutes. Okay, the fastest <laughs> and, drive from Rona Park to Sonoma Valley. Right. We also don't. There. We also don't right. ship in styrofoam usually. Just on the record, I just had a couple of those left over, so I figured I'd use them in the heat. Oh, nice, nice catch. Yeah. I don't want people thinking we're, we're using styro shippers all the time. Right. Natural wine shippers and slave labor. Wow. Yeah. The, the, the triumvirate. All right, you guys. Any, you got any other questions? No, this is no, I, definitely, you know, in normal times, Todd, I, I make it out to New York a couple times a year because we it's basically the only the only place that we have regular distribution um, with a with one of the distributors there in New York City. So you know I'm I'm familiar with some folks out on Long Island, big fans of what uh, David and, and Barbara uh, David Page and Barbara Shin did out there at the Shin Estates and yeah, uh, it kind of got my head wrapped around what farming organically really means in in New York, which is really a very different struggle than we have out here. So I definitely, um, you know, I'd love to come and see you as soon as, um, you know, as soon as New York lets Californians in uh, yeah. and we can, and we can move about the country again. Sure. Thing. Ever. You're, you're definitely, uh, these are, these are great wines and um, showing the potential, you know, what I love about it is 
you know, there's so many places where I've gone and, and the New York wines, you know, kind of take the Riesling out of it where you're trying to pound a, a square peg into a round hole making right. you know, California style Cab Franc. Exactly. Uh, Chardonnay that you just, it's not the right, it's not the right climate. It's not the right soil. Um, so, you know, adapting to what you got and you're going to thrive. And, and that's what these are showing. So fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, we make Cab Franc and Chardonnay too. It's just, I wanted to, you know, send you guys an example of like the kind of more out there stuff that we're doing anyway. Yeah. 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 This is awesome. And if you guys want to check out the website, it's wildarkfarm.com. And also on Instagram is at wildarkfarm. So um, you can check out some of the uh, photos from the, from the property. And, and uh, recently been on Twitter more often, but that's, I think that's my personal account. I don't know, you know, in isolation, I like, I need more human contact. So I'm like, oh, this Twitter thing seems like the thing to do. Yeah, yeah, that'll keep you busy if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, busy and outraged. Right. Outraged. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. All right, John, you want to wrap it up for us? Um, do we have any shout outs locally here? Uh, going you on? Know, you know. Um, okay. Sounds well, you know what? So here... You know, Sam, I think it's about time that we maybe, maybe all of us, we can send out and do a Zoom call um, for all of the, you know, listeners just to have it like happy hour style, not necessarily right, have yeah. to send them any wine because it's hard to ship across the country these days, but um, maybe we ought to set a date and um, all of us just get on and see who shows up one, you know, Thursday or Friday or something. This is a classic winemakers podcast marketing style where at the end of an episode, Bart brings up an idea, somebody brings up an idea, we agree to it, and then we yeah. go, oh, fuck, what did we just do? So, right. yes, yeah. it's a great exactly. idea, Bart, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be Girl there. Party, I'll, I'll, I'll join. All right. Sounds great. Well, you know, I'm going to wait until I get those those last four cans of uh, the piquette that I'm allocated. <laughs> That's what I'm going to have on the happy hour, because I can drink all four of them and, you know, still be happy. Still drive your kid to soccer practice. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, listen, thanks for listening, everybody. Todd, it was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for coming on the Winemaker Show. So good to see you guys. Honestly, it's been a while. So, and it's a real pleasure to say thanks for listening to the Winemakers. Yeah. Drink more, Paquette. Strange, more hearing, strange hearing that voice, John Myers. It's good. I'm excited <laughs> to be back on with the John Myers. That's awesome. Right. Thanks for having me, you guys. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks, Todd. Peace. Peace.